I Think Therefore I Fan podcast is generously supported by our listeners. If you would like to support I Think Therefore I Fan, go to our webpage, that's IThinkThereforeIFan.com, all one word, click on the link that says Donate, and follow the instructions. Your support is greatly appreciated. Hello, everyone, and welcome to I Think Therefore I Fan, a pop culture and philosophy podcast. On this podcast, we'll explore the most compelling philosophical themes as we find them in all of everyone's favorite fandoms. We're your hosts. I'm Dr. Richard Green. And I'm Dr. Rachel Robison Green. Hello, welcome back, everybody. Um, We've got kind of a a special um, episode this week due to some necessity. So normally we have all our our regular segments. And for most of the last week, um, Rach and I have been in bed with the flu. And so we're going to just have a conversation this week. Um, It should be um, pretty much just like all the other episodes, although we won't be doing interviews and we don't have a listener musing. But we, we promise the conversation will be so scintillating that um, <laughs> you'll be saying, gosh, I'm glad they didn't do that stupid listener musing or have those darn interviews. Um, so we're going to take up an, uh, kind of a meta question. Uh, so we're not going to be talking necessarily about particular works of art in pop culture, but rather about a certain phenomenon that occurs uh, within pop culture and how we ethically ought to deal with that phenomenon. Right. One that is very much in the, the public eye of late. So, yeah. So the, the, the issue for the week then is what do we do? How do we engage? How do we not engage, et cetera? What's the, the appropriate response to artwork produced by artists that have done things that are morally bad or morally objectionable um, in some cases, even morally reprehensible. So some people argue that once we've determined that an artist has engaged in morally problematic behavior, that should be it. Mm-hmm. We shouldn't pay money to uh, support their work. We shouldn't go to see their movies. We shouldn't view their exhibitions or whatever uh, kind of uh, format their art is being presented in. So there's, there's some intuitive appeal to that idea. But we want to make sure that, in, in our assessment of it, we want to make sure that that's not just sort of a dogmatic attitude. Mm-hmm. So we thought it'd be useful to kind of have a discussion of, and, and right now I'm not sure we're going to come to any concrete conclusions about mm-hmm. whether it would be good or bad, but just offer some considerations in each direction. Uh, so we'll start by talking about what might possibly be bad about engaging or being patrons of the work of problematic artists. Can, can we start with some examples of, of things oh, that, sure, that, that might count? So you, you had, um, we were talking earlier, and you had mentioned an ethics bowl case that covered this. Sure. There was an artist, and uh, his last name was Gill, I believe, mm-hmm. who um, had, was a famous artist and architect, but had uh, sexually abused his daughters. And there was an exhibition called The Body, it was an exhibition of his art, and that exhibition actually included statues of the naked bodies of the daughters that he molested. Mm-hmm. And so the question was, what should be done about this? What are the obligations of 
the community? What are the obligations of the art gallery? Should the art gallery even be offering such an exhibition? Should they be providing uh, sort of trigger warnings for uh, patrons before they go in to, to, to witness the art? Um, should the art be part of a, a conversation in a larger context about, you know, Gill's art on the one hand and uh, the prevalence of sexual misconduct mm-hmm. uh, that's sort of interwoven with that? How, how should that be addressed? So this is, this is one kind of case where you've, you've got a certain kind of bad behavior and then the badness manifesting itself in the art. Mm-hmm. And then you have at the other extreme sort of famously the Bill Cosby case where there's no reason to think that, that you know, any of the artwork involves the bad things attributed to him, right? The Cosby mm-hmm. show was basically clean, wholesome entertainment. But he's clearly done some some reprehensible things. And you see the same thing with Kevin Spacey. He's portraying characters. You know, they're the characters they're written to be in the script. They're not mm-hmm. some manifestation of his perviness. But, uh, right. but nevertheless, you wonder, should I be paying money to advance this person's career? Mm-hmm. And then sort of in the middle, there's kind of an interesting um, case, like the, the Harvey Weinstein cases, where he's a producer yeah. of the works, right? He's, yeah. he's, he's funding it. And people in certain cases have been harassed and in order to get in the works have, had, have been coerced into doing things that they wouldn't have done otherwise. So you've got some connection between what actually makes its way into the art and the badness, but it's not like in the case of Gil the Artist where the art is representations of the badness. Right. And then in, in those kinds of cases, you're dealing with messing with the careers of not just Harvey Weinstein, who seems to be fine as far... No, I didn't mean that the way that sounded, but seems to be fine in terms of financial stability. Right. Maybe not for long, I don't know. Yeah. Um, but but other folks who are, you know, the crew and the cast and so forth of these mm-hmm. productions, it's actually important that people can see their movies. So how do we, how do we engage that? Right, right, right. So the, the, the people involved with um, House of Cards that were fully expecting to do the very next season and suddenly had the rug pulled out from mm-hmm. under them. And then it was put back in, think, you know, thankfully, right? Um, but for a while there, a lot of people thought, wow, this guy did bad things and I'm out of work. And or the new instantiation of Roseanne. Yeah, right, uh, right. But then, again, they fixed that one, too, mm-hmm. by, I think, reintroducing it as the Connors. Right, right. But they don't always. So Louis C.K. had a, a movie about to come out right around the time that his troubles became public and his behavior became public. And so the people involved with that, anyone that might have had residuals or a percentage mm-hmm. of the, the gate, had a movie that wasn't um, going to be released. Right. So we we observe this behavior and we recognize it to be bad un, in an unqualified way. Mm-hmm. This, this, I mean, we can have maybe a conversation about degrees of badness in each of these cases. I don't think it's useful to paint all moral behaviors with the same brush. We should be sensitive to nuance. Mm-hmm. And yet, for all the people we mentioned, it seems like something wrong has gone on there. And this, this right. discussion won't be an assessment of the badness of what's happened, but rather how we should engage it, um, what the relationship is between, say, the moral component of uh, our assessment of a work and the aesthetic component of our assessment of that work, right? Can we separate those two? Right, and and ought we? And, you know, if we can, is it the case that we should, right? Two, mm-hmm. two sort of separate questions. Is sure. it possible and should it happen? Sure. So it might be useful then, uh, to go back to what we were saying earlier, to identify 
if it's bad, what exactly is bad about it? Mm-hmm. So I had a couple of ideas that maybe we could throw around. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one potential bad consequence of spending our money on the art of these problematic artists is that it might uh, encourage other people to engage in the behavior, mm-hmm. right? It might... Uh, now, that's not likely. It's not likely that people are going to say, ah, people are uh, continuing to watch the Cosby show, therefore I can engage in sexual misconduct. But insofar as it might normalize the behavior, insofar as it's an expression of this is something we're willing to accept, mm-hmm. uh, others who might be inclined to engage in similar behavior might think it's no big deal. Right. Let me, let me give you an example of this that, that's sort of in a, a different realm. Um, just to maybe demonstrate that it's not all that far-fetched to think about. Okay. So, interestingly, in the, the 1960s and the 1970s, um, it suddenly seemed very cool for pop stars to just be total, horrible human beings to everybody around them, right? And mm-hmm. the people somehow glorify this, like, oh, they're so, so tortured, they can't be nice to people, right? So you get these, mm-hmm. like... Jim Morrison type figures that were, you know, um, you know, abusing people and abusing the relationships of their bandmates, and mm-hmm. um, and that that got exalted. It seemed like if you were a, a nice person in that industry, and that was your professional image, you know, you were going to be um, Davy Jones of the Monkees. You weren't going to be Mick Jagger of the Rolling Stones. It was almost like the kiss mm-hmm. of death. Okay. So we do have a way as a society of, of sort of looking up to certain kind of bad behaviors, right? And, and I'm not suggesting these people were bad because they engaged in lots of sexual activity. They were bad because they, they did that sort of thing and then thought it was cool to act like they didn't care, right? Love them and leave them. Treat people and, with disrespect. Yeah, and it, and it had a real ripple effect. It wasn't the case that every rock star had to do that. It, it turned out to be the case that every 14 to 30-year-old that got in a band mm-hmm. thought, well, now that I'm in a band, I better just act like a big jerk or... Because that's the rock star persona. Yeah, or okay. people won't think I have any sort of cred. I mean, uh-huh. this, these sort of behaviors do have a way of, of influencing large groups of people. Right. So these are consequentialist considerations. So consequentialism is the moral view that uh, it's, it, the consequences are what determine the moral status of an action, right? So it, on this view, it would be bad uh, to, to continue to pay money to see these kinds of artists uh, if doing so would result in bad consequences. Right. right and it's right. not clear that it's going to do that in every case. And, and, and presumably the more, um, the more famous you are, the more likely it is that, that your behavior will have widespread consequences. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are also considerations uh, concerning merit. So these are more deontological considerations. Uh, so considerations that have to do with uh, rights, duties, often a kind of rule following, that type of thing. Um, uh, and often, often deontological considerations uh, have to do with things like merit and justice and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. So yeah, right. um, you might think that it's just simply not fair <laughs> that uh, individuals that are engaging in morally problematic behavior have all the wealth and influence that come with these positions of power, right? There are billions of people on this planet, mm-hmm. uh, and opportunities like being a movie star, being a major athlete, being a prominent, a, a really prominent academic or whatever, author, writer, artist, what have you, the, those, those positions are really hard to achieve. And so you might think it's just as a matter of justice, as a matter of what, you know, people getting what they deserve, um, good things happening to good people mm-hmm. and so on, uh, that, that Kevin Spacey shouldn't be 
starring in major motion pictures and have his own show on Netflix and all this kind of thing when he's yeah. engaging in bad he, behaviors. His, his, he's been given a great gift of his stature, mm-hmm. and he's been pretty aloof and played fast and loose with it and all that. Maybe he doesn't deserve it, right? That's Not just aloof and played fast with it, but is actually sexually assaulting and harassing people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so, right. Yeah, um, right. So, and... and and, use, and, and using his position of power to manipulate others into giving him what he wants. So even in those cases where people aren't accusing him of rape, there's still some manipulation there. Right, um, right, right. So, uh, right. So then an, another uh, thing I was thinking of, and I sort of mentioned this earlier, but um, how we spend our money is, in a sense, a form of speech. Mm-hmm. So... Um, uh, we ought to ask ourselves, and all these considerations I'm offering seem to suggest that, yes, we should not spend our money on these artists. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I think there's room for further conversation, so I'm not trying to suggest that that's the all-things-considered conclusion we should draw. Right, right, right. Uh, but um, you might want to ask yourself if, if indeed spending money is a, is a form of speech— is this what you want to express? Mm-hmm. Right? So if you go see a Kevin Spacey movie, do you really want to express the sentiment that you approve of Kevin Spacey continuing to have a prominent position in Hollywood? Right. So I wonder if the flip side of that is not something like, um, I'm spending my money on what I consider to be great art. Um, I'm not talking about Spacey because I'm, I'm not that big of a fan. But um, And... I am I am voting with my dollars and I am making a statement, but I might be making the statement that um, art is more important to me mm-hmm. oh, that's than, a good point. than these sorts of things. Although right. that's that's morally accessible too, right? Um, if if I if I say, mm. gosh, man, I just I really love this great art, I don't care who gets hurt along the way, that's That's problematic for yeah. sure, but uh, I don't know. I'm wondering if these values are commensurable or not. If there's are there values that we can really compare or not. I mean, that's that's maybe the fundamental philosophical question involved here. So, um, I remember seeing s- certain pieces of art. Uh, maybe um, Caravaggio is a good example of this. Like mm-hmm. I've I've heard. I I don't know a lot about Caravaggio, so I'm kind of speaking out of school here. But I think Car- I, I've heard that Caravaggio is kind of a reprehensible human being. Mm-hmm. Um, but he produced some cool art. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I remember being in Florence and seeing some of it. Right. And being exceptionally impressed by it. Right, right. Now, to be fair, I didn't learn that Caravaggio was a horrible human being until after we went to Florence. Right. Um, but but is it possible for us to have, I mean, is it wrong for us to have a, a, a legitimate and genuine and, and authentic aesthetic experience with someone's art uh, while it's simultaneously the case that that person's a bad person. Right. And, and also, um, you mentioned before that these things admit of degrees, right? Mm-hmm. Different, some things are worse than others. Um, I kind of want to know, what do we mean by a bad person? So, you mm-hmm. know, so sure. suppose I root for sports teams and I, I find out that a player on my team um, assaulted somebody, um, you know, Sexually or, or, you know, physically just did some really bad thing. My inclination is to think, cut this guy. Get him off the team. I don't want to root mm-hmm. for him anymore. I don't want any part of it. Um, on the other hand, if I find out that my favorite player is kind of just a prima donna and not very nice to mm-hmm. the people around him. So, you know, depending on, you know, was, was 
Caravaggio nasty to everybody. I think he was very violent. Under the sun. Yeah. So, yeah. So, if, you know, if he's, if he's physically harming people, then mm-hmm. that might factor in. So maybe, maybe the threshold of where we, you know, are willing to sort of vote with our dollars might... Have something to do with the, the severity of the offense. Yeah. Okay. Well, that, yeah, sure. Exactly. That makes sense. Um, but, but given that, that aesthetic, you wonder if aesthetic value has the value that it has independently from moral assessment, or if assessment of the aesthetic status of something uh, is always going to overlap with, this, with our moral assessment of the status of that thing. Right. So, so my inclination is to say, no, it doesn't always overlap, right? I mean, I can, mm-hmm. I can look at something and, and sort of have an opinion about what I think it is, whether it's, it's good or not, in absence of any knowledge whatsoever of the producer. This might be your, your Caravaggio experience in right. Florence. And we were, we were both pretty taken. I, I remember, just as an aside, um, that I sort of had to talk myself out of getting a, a tattoo on my back of, of the Caravaggio's Medusa, <laughs> Medusa <laughs> yeah. after seeing it. You know, I was like, yeah. oh, man, that's cool. And I probably would have got it, um, except for the fact that I, I didn't... I wasn't confident that the tattoo artist would be able to pull it off and it wouldn't just look <laughs> stupid. But subsequently coming to learn certain things, it's like, oh, yeah, I don't think I want a Caravaggio on my back. That said, I can't help but think it's great. I mean, that's... that's right. you know, Even like, after learning, because I was going to say, yeah. well, in that case, we still are describing a case in which um, we don't know in advance. If we did know in advance, would they always overlap? But I think you're suggesting no, because you still assess it as great. Yeah, And, yeah. and so do I. So... Right. Um, but this this brings up uh, another question that I wanted to ask, which was, uh, do we want to make a distinction? And this opens a whole can of worms, I recognize. But do we want to make a distinction between uh, past morally problematic behaviors on the one hand and present or future uh, problematic behaviors on the other or um, past works of art on the one hand and present and future works of art on the other hand? Because... Um, you know, say that we were to learn something morally problematic about um, Shakespeare or someone like that, mm-hmm. or right, Plato right. or Aristotle or whomever. Mm-hmm. Um, how should that assess our, our assessment? How should that affect our assessments of those figures? Especially given the fact that um, the, culture, the um, cultural context was different. A lot to unpack there, but um, maybe before we get into the past. Um, versus present and future distinction where we look at either bad behaviors or works of art. Um, one thing you said was, you know, Shakespeare or Plato and Aristotle, um, you know, somebody like that from the past, would we, would we view them differently? And I wonder if there's not a distinction to be made between um, philosophers or scientists, historians, etc., on the one hand, and artists on the other. So what I have in mind is, Presumably what the philosophers were doing, Plato and Aristotle, were trying to give us an account of how the world was. They're they're attempting to get at truth. And I understand that artists may be doing a similar kind of thing in certain respects, but in other respects they may not be. They might just be entertaining or so forth. Mm -hmm. So given the goal of philosophy most of the time is to to get at the truth, um, suppose we were to find out that, that Aristotle had been really reprehensible and it murdered a bunch of people, mm-hmm. um, it wouldn't affect whether his theory was true, right? Um, he, he's either mm. right about certain things or he's not. Um, and then in the event that you know his philosophy turns out to be very good, I, I've heard good things about this kid, um, 
regardless of how awful he was, we should probably embrace it, right? That's interesting. I almost, I, when, as you were presenting that, I thought you were going to go in the exact opposite direction, that perhaps it's even more problematic when people who are engaged in, in the important enterprise of it arriving at truths is uh, engaging in morally problematic behavior because it might obscure uh, the truth of what they're trying to establish I, I could see that happening, but you know, if if under the circumstances you have, you know, a deductively valid argument for some position, um, you know, say that knowledge isn't closed under known deductive inference, and the premises are clearly true, I'm, I'm reminded of my doctoral dissertation here. Um, <laughs> motivated by <laughs> motivated, right? I mean, you know, if if you just recognize, well, it's like, right, that sounds right, that sounds right, that sounds right, the logic's there. Sure. It seems like you should you should embrace that. Okay, so the fact that these figures engaged in morally problematic behaviors wouldn't affect either the validity of the arguments or the truth of the premises, and so mm-hmm. you should still accept the conclusion of the argument regardless. Right, unless there's some argument that says, you know what, I'm I'm you're awful, I'm not even gonna listen to you, I don't care how right you are. In which case we have to bring up the past present stuff and maybe go back and say we gotta stop talking about well, here, here's a good example of this. Um, I, I want to get my facts right. Um, right it, it turns out that Heidegger, I believe, was a Nazi right. sympathizer. Right. No, a member of the Nazi party. Oh, a member of the Nazi yeah. party. So lots of people would say, don't read Heidegger for that reason. I mean, there is a this sort of case to be made. Um, but then I wonder, you know, if, if the goal is to get it truth, I mean, fortunately, um, I'm going to show a little bit of bias here. I, I don't think we have that problem so much with Heidegger. No, uh, <laughs> but um, yeah, I mean, is is that that a, a deal breaker? Right. I mean, mm-hmm. should, I guess the question is: Should it be different with respect to historians, philosophers, scientists? And you're you're putting forth, well, ah, oh, yeah. I don't want to say too much about Heidegger specifically, but I do, I do think that the, the, the aim of certain continental philosophers is uh, different from the aim of anal, uh, analytic philosophers. So I think mm-hmm. you know, somebody, a, a lot of people writing the existential or even postmodern tradition, uh, but in particular, I'm, I guess I'm more qualified to talk about the existential tradition, are um, th- their aim is to say something about how life ought to be lived or, or something like mm-hmm. that. Uh, in which case you might think it's even more important yeah, <laughs> yeah. But, uh, that they're not engaging in morally problematic behavior. But I think just, I'm, I'm just kind of in response to what you're saying, thinking that Heidegger wouldn't be one of these dudes that's pointed at truth in the same way that a scientist. Right, right. Um, but, you know, suppose they, they, you know, you found out that, you know, Bertrand Russell had done, really bad things and, mm-hmm. and you know and he sort of explicitly is talking about right. truth and the logic of truth um, I mean it, it might sort of make you wonder why he doesn't you know practice what he preaches or right. that sort of thing but you know if, if what we see in on denoting is right then what we see in on denoting is, is is right um, and then the question is so we can we can look at the, the the purpose of things like philosophy and say, well, you know, then that maybe makes us say we shouldn't look at, you know, the facts of the life of the philosopher and the artist in a way, at least as far as determining whether we take the, the philosophical work seriously. Um, and then similarly, why don't we look at the, um, the works of the artist and say, well, the artist is attempting to entertain. If it's a comedian, it's attempting to be funny. If it's mm-hmm. you know, a writer, it's attempting to invoke 
um, evoke certain feelings or emotions. Right? Um, none of those are striking me as being any more bound up with their behavior than does is truth bound up with the behavior of philosophers. And, and maybe they should get a pass too. Maybe we do want to just sort of lump Plato or, or Aristotle, Shakespeare all together. Or that it's not so much that they get a pass, but rather... Their, our assessment of their work shouldn't be influenced by our assessments of their character. Yeah, yeah. It's yeah. you know if we if we if we take the goal as the thing to distinguish philosophers from others, then looking at the goals of artists, um, I would think in, in you know a lot of cases would sort of push us in a, a direction of saying yeah you know facts about their personal life. None of that seems to go against the the other things you were saying earlier though. I mean there, you know there may be very good reasons you know meritorious reasons or consequentialist mm-hmm. reasons and all that. I mean, you know, the, the entire picture isn't, here's what they're trying to do, let's take them at that value. If, if certain artists are having sort of a deleterious effect on societal behaviors, um, then we should remove them from the public eye. And right? that kind of thing can be hard to measure because it may be that certain sorts of systems, social systems, and I'm not offering any of these as a concrete certainty, but say, for example, um, uh, uh, patriarchy or um, capitalism, right? Uh, b- both of these social systems might be having a deleterious effect on society as a whole, and they're just so pervasive and widespread that we aren't... Con- well, people who study it may be consciously aware of it, but people who are just living in the world mm-hmm. aren't really aware of the the harmful effects of those systems potentially. And so I'm thinking... Insofar as it may be that we say, okay, look, if Shakespeare was a horrible human being, um, I love Shakespeare, so maybe I should switch my example. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, uh, then, then continuing to pay money to see his work or whatever um, is just going to contribute to this overall sense in the community that that kind of behavior is okay. And then we can't measure how much it contributes to that, but it does contribute to it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then it can be kind of hard. We can have an epistemic problem, uh, problem in moral epistemology. Right. So, so it sounds like your view is there's not really a useful distinction between past, present, and future engagements, at least as far as some of the badnesses go. Oh, it's not my view. I'm just throwing it out there. Just throwing it out there. So that's, yeah. so that's, that's one possibility. Yeah. Um, Okay, so there's another thing about about time that's sort of interesting, and I wonder if it plays in here. Um, so as far as, you know, what sort of things you can have certain kind of takes on, it's thought that, um, you know, you, you have to get a certain amount of distance, right? There's the expression, ooh, too soon. Mm-hmm. Um, okay. Right? Yeah. There's a, and um, the aristocrats, um, Gilbert Gottfried, right? starts making 9-11 jokes, what seemed to be, you know, just weeks or maybe a month or two after 9-11. And he got all bothered, and so he went into a really long version of the aristocrat said, okay, I'll, I'll show you. Um, so what, what I have in mind here, right now I'm thinking of the Woody Allen film, Crimes and Misdemeanors, where Alan Alda's character says, comedy is tragedy plus time, right? Time, <laughs> time's important. Okay, so... Um, when Hogan's Heroes came out, you know, it was in the, the 1960s or 70s. I think it spilled into the 70s. Um, you know, just a, a couple decades after World War II. And they were just presenting the, you know, World War II as this funny, jokey thing. And people were, were furious. Um, and I, I think still today, right, um, 
you know, if, if you were to just do a, you know, a slapstick thing about the Holocaust, people, you know, whose, whose lives are affected or the, you know, immediate descendants of people whose lives are affected would be hurt and bothered and there, there would be justifiably be outrage. On the other hand, if you were to just do the, the, you know, the silliest new Broadway musical ever um, about the Huns, mm-hmm. right? Or, you know, um, some, you know, if you think of like Monty Python's Life of Brian, right? Was, right, or the British being, TV show uh, Horrible Histories. Horrible Histories, yeah. right. So they, I mean, That's they, a fun show if you haven't watched yeah, it. For adults and children alike, in my opinion. It's great. So they, they do stuff from all areas of history. But, you know, there's just like gags about... Um, Tudor era beheadings, like yeah. crazy, mm-hmm. um, and and we don't think that's problematic. So we think you get enough distance on things, and everything's okay. Uh, uh, is that is the mechanism at work there going to say, yeah, it's Plato, it's Aristotle, we can't get involved in the minutia or it's Shakespeare of their personal lives? Is it, you know, it's like Attila the Hun. You you could do a skit where you know he's your next door neighbor, he's Wilson. But instead of looking through the fence, he keeps tearing it down or, you know, something like that. I wonder if it depends on the severity of what kind of bad behavior you're talking about. Um, so, for example, if, if and, and to what extent context is going to say have something to say about what's going on. So uh, you might make a distinction between um, behavior that is objectively bad on the one hand and behavior that people are morally blameworthy for on the other. Um, so, for example, it's objectively bad to have misogynistic views about women. It's objectively bad to think that women are not capable of uh, so, of doing some of the having some of the skills or engaging in some of the tasks that men are capable uh, of engaging in. Uh, but uh, on the on the other hand, uh, in terms of whether someone's morally responsible for those or, or whether we can, can consider someone to be morally blameworthy for having misogynistic attitudes will depend on what culture they're coming up in, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, if they couldn't help but to be, you know, if they were indoctrinated to be misogynist, good, good. Yeah, it's, right. it's hard to say, uh, okay, this is a morally objectively bad thing you did and you're morally responsible for it when they couldn't have failed to have those attitudes. Mm-hmm. Right. A lot of people in our society are indoctrinated into it, but presumably they get enough evidence to the contrary right. that, you know... It's not just so pervasive that they can't escape it. And it's not just indoctrination. It's indoctrination plus other people going, by the way, you're indoctrinated and yeah, it's bad. Right, and, right, right. And all that. But, but then there's some things, I mean, if you're talking about instances of killing, it, it just becomes like less plausible that the people really didn't know. So I'm thinking about... Uh, the, this, yeah, the, yeah. the example I'm about to offer... Uh, speaks to two of the points we just made. So when it comes to like acts of genocide or killing, you wonder if it's ever, uh, if, if it's ever the case that an appropriate amount of time has passed. So you can make a joke about the Huns, but maybe making jokes about particular actions, mm-hmm. uh, people might respond to negatively. I'm mm-hmm. not saying they'd be justified in doing so, but they might. So I'm, I'm thinking about it, it uh, something that happened to me, um, and I don't want to sound like a wet blanket here, but... Uh, this was my genuine reaction. So I went to graduate school in Massachusetts and, uh, at Halloween we'd go to Salem and there's, that's, you know, that's something we're thinking about there too. Um, because Salem of course was the site of a, a, of a human rights atrocity, Mm -hmm. right? The Salem witch trials. A bunch of them, yeah. Uh, and, and nevertheless, I really like Salem. It's, a, it's an interesting town. You're a spooky so, girl. 
So we went to, uh, I've been to a couple of the museums there um, with you and with my siblings and they're, they're fun and interesting. But one of the ones that we went to was like a, um, a reproduction of the dungeons that the, that the victims would have been kept in. Right, uh, and so that it was like really inhumane conditions. Like you'd see what would count as a a cell for a single individual, and I think I would just absolutely go insane in a cell that small. No windows, completely yeah. pitch black, very small. You know, such that it could right. hard it could scarcely contain a single person. Um, right. and, not a, and not a person standing up. Right, in a lot of cases, you'd just be hunched in a little ball the size of your bald right. body. I mean, and I've seen this in other dungeons and stuff. And I, and so this was, it, it kind of tore at your heartstrings. But then elsewhere in the dungeon, there were like people jumping out, like cast members jumping out and trying to scare you. And it just seemed like totally, completely off. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Do you guys realize what you're doing here? Mm-hmm, <laughs> so, right, yeah. So it depends, but yes. Yeah, look how fun it is how these people were kept instead yeah. of just kind of right. a somber right. glimpse into it. And so maybe there's something about that where you're, it's not, it's not simply that you're, um, you know, kind of in a removed way making jokes about something from the past, but you're actually immersed in it. And then you really realize, oh, the joke doesn't seem appropriate in this context. Mm -hmm. But anyway, so hopefully that's not too big of a digression because we're talking about kind of the humor involved with the past and, uh, at this point, but, um, whether, whether the, 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 the sting can be taken out of bad behaviors by time, I think is really the key point here. Mm-hmm. Right. And it, well, your response is it's pretty context specific and yeah, not always. Time's, time's not always going to fix it at, at least. Right. Yeah. Good. So finally, I just think um, there may be a distinction. Often people will confuse um, our psychological reactions um, to things with the morally appropriate reaction that because we are inclined to respond to things in a certain way, then that, that means it follows that that's the way we ought to respond. And that's the naturalistic fallacy, right? You can't mm-hmm. get an ought from an is. Right. Right. Um, of course there's lots of philosophical debate about that, but we'll just stipulate it <laughs> for the purposes of this, uh, conversation. Cause you can't. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so, so I'll just give you a couple of examples of that. Uh, proximity tends to make a psychological difference to our assessments of our moral obligations. So when someone's really far away from us, we're not as inclined to think we need to help them, even if they're in, more in need of help. Um, uh, but so our, our psychological uh, intuitions in this case might actually be helpful. It depends on which side of this case you fall on. So um, when you're watching The Cosby Show, for example... Um, it may be that it's perfectly morally acceptable to watch the Cosby show, right? Even knowing that Bill Cosby did some horrible things, but psychologically, I think most people would be disinclined, not necessarily disinclined to watch it, but disinclined to have the same reaction while watching it as they Mm -hmm. did in the eighties or nineties. Yeah. It strikes me as virtually impossible to, right. That you can't watch that and not think, Oh, this guy turned out to be kind of a pervert. Yeah. Um, Although I wonder if there's not something special going on there because, um, you know, Bill Cosby was this lovable character, mm-hmm. right? It's, it's impossible for him to continue to be lovable. Um, if you found out somebody who's not such a lovable character, um, that, but you really, you really liked him, you know, um, 
Uh, well, Kevin, uh, but, I'm thinking Kevin Spacey in uh, House of Cards. He was a despicable character, and yet... Right. Uh, I just... It's the so so same get, thing. You get the same uh, result. Yeah. You're watching House Especially of Cards. Especially since and, he did that weird self-promotional thing where he was taking on his character from House of Cards. Did you see that? I, I read about it. Um, yeah. Yeah, I yeah you're right. So in in that case, I'm wondering if, if I found out Larry David did bad things, and not that, that I've heard anything that's bad about him, but he's he's kind of not particularly likable anyway. It might in be easier to watch, yeah, in the show, um, curb your enthusiasm than say the Cosby Show. But but I know I think you're right. I think the, the Kevin mm-hmm. Spacey thing is decisive. So interestingly, you, you mentioned that you know that that proximity plays a role. Um, I mean, one of the, the things that you and I have talked about a lot is, is you know, we worry about um, people sometimes thinking, well, that's really far away from me, so I don't have mm-hmm. ethical obligations there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, family relief kinds of things. I think that's maybe what's going on in the, the time example, right? Mm-hmm. It's not that a certain amount of time passes and so things change. There's a certain amount of time, certain amount of time passes so people don't feel don't proximate, temporally proximate. They just don't right. give a crap, right? Sure. And so no, there's absolutely. A, that's the descriptive answer. So maybe the normative question is, well, yeah, but you know, should you be enjoying this thing about the Huns when even though no one that's causally connected to it is around to see it, it's still the case that a lot of people were killed mercilessly. Sure. And, um, and by the way, I'm kind of winging my hunt history. Um, I'm, I'm, just, I'm just going on a feel. For I them. would be too. I, I feel like the huns were bad. I <laughs> All right. Well, we'd love to hear your thoughts on this. I know this. We've spoken with some of the listeners on this topic, and know that this is. Uh, a topic that you have attitudes about. So feel free to go around to our webpage or our Facebook page, I think Therefore I Fan, and let us know what your, your ideas are and maybe we'll share some of those as amusing in an upcoming episode. Okay, right. What do, what do we like in this week? I can tell you what we're not liking. We're not liking the flu. No, <laughs> that's right. It's been an ugly, ugly week. Although the flu... Uh, contributed to one of our pop culture, uh, some of our pop culture consumption this week, in that we watched a really long marathon of American Pickers, oh, which we'd never seen before. Over more than one day. Yeah. And, and, <laughs> and this, we loved it. This may be flu based, but we, we think it's great. Um, and, and normally it's the kind of thing that I put in the category of guilty pleasure, but I'm not even going there. I actually thought it was really charming and entertaining. Sure. Yeah. I mean, the people, the people that he, so American Pickers, the premise of the show is that it's like, um, a, a person, a, a, a group of people who run um, antique shops, I take it, and are collectors yeah. otherwise that go around to different kind of people and and buy some of their collections. And it's not just that they buy things in their collections, but they really just appreciate their collections. Mm-hmm. I appreciate appreciation. It's so rare. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> just, yeah. And just uh, respect for history. And, and then we learned some interesting things about history. Yeah, yeah. Great fun. So that was pretty fun. Yeah, we went and saw Escape Room, and um, I, I think I speak for not only you and I, but everyone that's ever seen this film. <laughs> um, pretty lame, right? Um, so, okay, that, you know, it, it looked like it might be a lot of fun, you know, Saw-esque qualities and mm-hmm. all of that, but... Most of the stuff wasn't that creative. I thought, I said this to you coming out, that I thought most of the intensity was generated by people just kind of yelling, oh my God, oh my God, the time's running out, oh my gosh, you know. Very uh, two-dimensional characters. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, yeah. So um, not good. We, we came home from that and we're in the mood for some more um, horror or some horror because I ended up not counting. Um, so we, we popped a, a film on Netflix, Mara. Yeah, that was pretty fun. And that, that, was, that was really good. Mm-hmm. So um, Yeah, check that out if you like horror movies. Yeah, definitely worth, um, worth a watch. And then um, True Detective came out um, because we weren't feeling that well and wanted to go to bed early. We, we decided not to watch it, but um, the first two episodes of season three aired. Um, we, like everybody else, loved season one. Um, but like everybody else, didn't think that highly of season two, although I, I enjoyed watching all of it. And I, I, I think you did, but maybe a little less than I did. Um, I enjoyed it. But I'm, but I'm hoping season three is good. We'll give you our assessment on that in an upcoming episode, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah, coming up. Um, <clears throat> all right, well, um, episode 15 is in the can. It's a wrap. Once again, everything has come up Charbonneau. Um, and we're certainly going to be doing the episode on uh, arguments for and against the existence of God in pop culture next week. And so, so we'll, we'll see you then. See you then.